So we come to this portion uh, in the finality of chapter 1 of Colossians. We've been working our way through this chapter. And what is uh, true is that the Apostle Paul never saw himself as um, another Christ. He, he, he didn't take that posture. But what he did know is that um, his calling was to the Gentile world. You may recall that um, Jesus, when he spoke in Matthew 10, he uh, gave the command to his disciples. He said, uh, don't go by way of the Gentiles and don't go by the way of the Samaritans, but go into the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And he commanded them to lay hands on the sick and to open the eyes of the blind. In other words, the 12 weren't commissioned really to go to the Gentile world. Now, we know that at Jesus' ascension, uh, there Luke records for us that he, he commanded uh, them, his disciples, go into all the world and make disciples of all men, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And so in that last command, there was the broad horizon of that that could include the Gentile world. But when we get over into the book of Acts, we, uh, even in the second chapter and with the uh, pouring out of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, Many of the, the 12, eventually they, they choose a 12th after losing Judas, right? And they choose Matthias, and we don't ever hear of Matthias again, really. But many of them really were focused still upon the Jewish community. In fact, we read later on in, in Peter's life when he has a dream about this white sheet coming down from heaven and, and on it, unclean uh, things from the Jewish perspective and, and uh, the Lord in the dream telling Peter to rise and eat and his response is, you know, no, Lord, I never would do eat that which is unclean. And God says to him, don't call that which I have cleansed unclean. And Paul, uh, Peter perceives in that dream that that God is opening up the gospel message to the Gentile world. But to keep that in perspective, many of his disciples were focused upon the gospel message, the message of Jesus being the Messiah, being predominantly a message that needs to come to the Jew. And yet, Paul after his encounter with Christ on that Damascus road, <laughs> is uh, the, the prophecy about his life is that Jesus says, uh, gives the word to Ananias, tells him, I will show him what things he must suffer and what he will do unto my, he will bear my word to the Gentile. So though Paul never saw himself in any way as another Christ, he did know that his call was to the Gentile world. And so when he is writing this 
last few words to the Colossian believers. As I draw your attention to verse 24, he says that I now rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ. In other words, I am suffering for Christ, filling up that which was lacking for the Gentile world's understanding. And he says that that's happening, of course, uh, for the sake of his body, which is the church. And so he takes a moment to define for the Colossian believers the church. And it's been said that just in case, you know, the, the uh, community of faith there in Colossae would have thought that they're the only ones, uh, Paul takes a moment to, to broaden their horizons to help them see and recognize that, no, the church, the church is in totality the entire body of Christ. And so this reality uh, has been a hallmark of things needed along the way. If we look at church history, which can be somewhat uh, not a real good history to follow, but organizations throughout uh, time have come to the table and said, no, we are the true church. We go all the way back to uh, the beginning or the installment of Roman Catholicism, they believed that they were the church. Fast forward, you know, uh, at least 1,500 years or more, we have organizations that have arisen that have claimed that they are the church, uh, to which some are not even uh, Orthodox Christian organizations. Of course, you have uh, the familiar, the Church of Latter-day Saints of Jesus Christ. They changed their name from the Mormon Church to, to the Church of the Latter-day Saints in order to uh, encompass and draw a broader horizon. And they claim that they are the church. Uh, you have um, the Jehovah's Witnesses who say that no, our framework of, of understanding the, the truth of the New Testament, we, we are the church. And yet, we know, uh, based on... Uh, critical theological exegesis of, of scripture that things that both of those organizations believe are not true in biblical uh, theology. They've rewritten it. And there are others as well, but what the test here, it's like Paul says, no, 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 Colossians. Uh, the church is his entire body. And what would that constitute? Well, I, I believe he's dovetailing off of what he 
had reinforced to them in the previous couple of verses where you look at uh, verse 21 when he says, And you who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. And we studied this last week. If indeed you continue in the faith, so that's one of the uh, elements, continuing in the faith, grounded and steadfast, Grounded and rooted in the truth of Scripture that has not been perverted or twisted or changed, steadfast, and look at what he says, and are not moved away from what? The hope of the gospel which you heard. The test of whether a church is the church is are they Grounded, steadfast, and have they not moved away from the gospel? The gospel. And what is the gospel? If someone were to ask you today, what is the gospel message? I hear this word about the gospel. What is it? What would your response be? Are we not... Commanded, if not even exhorted, is the word I'm looking for, to know how to clearly define and explain the gospel to someone who does not know it. You know, oftentimes people look at what's going on in a church, or they look at a church for an understanding of what you and I would today know to be the gospel. What is the gospel? The gospel is that there is one God manifest in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And that that one true God created all mankind, placed them in a perfect environment, and gave them one command that they were to obey, not to eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and that man chose in their constitution of having a free will to disobey God and therefore fell from the place of unbroken relationship with God and that was called sin. And that for thousands of years this one true God sought to bring a knowledge to the world of himself through a national people called Israel who were given the privilege and the command to hold the scriptures, what we know to be the the Old Testament, and to carry the oracle of God and to be a witness to the world of this one true God because through that national people, God would bring his only begotten son into the world And to do what the laws of God could not do, but to place himself willingly on a cross at Calvary and die and to take upon himself the penalty for sin so that all who believe in him and in him alone by faith are accepted in the beloved, are forgiven by the blood of Jesus, and are now promised eternity with God and a life blessed here on planet Earth. The gospel. And yet it is foolishness to those who are perishing. Everyone, so many, want to just kind of 
make their own story up and, and paint God how, you know, years ago we used to watch this painting show, Bob something or other, and he said, you can have anything you want in your little world. That was his commercial. And he would just paint a tree and go, go ahead and paint a tree. You can have anything you want. In your... And it's like people do that spiritually with scripture, with the, the picture of, of uh, who God is. And yet Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And so Paul finds it necessary to remind the Colossians that it's the gospel that defines if a church is a church, have they not moved away? The importance of the body of Christ as a whole. In his letter to the Corinthians, remember what Paul said about the body of Christ? Uh, you can reference it there later. I'll read you a few verses from 1 Corinthians 12. He said that the body has many members, but all the members of that one body being many are one body, so also is Christ. We're one if we continue in the faith grounded and steadfast and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel. We are one. And that God has set the members of his body, each one of them in the body just as it pleases him, as he was pleased to do so. That he would call certain members of his body to exist and live in war-torn Afghanistan and Iraq that he would call certain members of his body to live in uh, North Korea. And if we were to think that, that well, you know, it's, it's us four and no more, or, you know, we're okay kind of by ourselves. No, uh, the illustration that the Spirit of God gives Paul and he... Uh, emulates to the Corinthians, says that the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. No, much rather those members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary. There is not a person in the body of Christ that you and I don't have need of. And yet, we're so, you know, does it fit my personality kind of people at times? Maybe you've met a Christian that rubs you the wrong way. Guess what? God probably placed that person in your life specifically to help grow you. And you're thinking, well, I'm just going to need to grow them. You know, they need to grow. <laughs> Whoa, time out more necessary. And so you get this sense that, of course, if one suffers, all suffer. If one is honored, then all the members rejoice with it. You get the sense that Paul knows there's a need to reinforce that truth to the Christians in Colossae. Because he takes these afflictions 
of Christ for the sake of his body, which is the church. I mean, we just need to move away uh, from this sense that the church is a place we go and Christianity is a thing we do. Church is what we are. And Christianity is to be our life. So, in verse 25, he brings up two words that I uh, struck me as imperative to consider. Speaking of the church, he says, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God which has uh, which was given to me for you to fulfill the word of God. Minister and stewardship, those two words. Uh, interesting, as a noun, the word minister uh, means uh, someone who serves, a servant or an attendant. And uh, oftentimes, uh, that word minister gets placed as a, a title on uh, someone who is a, a Bible teacher or a pastor uh, or a leader in the church. And uh, our mom, bless her heart, she was often so sweet, she would uh, say something to me occasionally. She would say, I don't know if they know you're a minister. And I would, you know, thanks, Mom, you know. But it's when I get the mail that says, to the Reverend Arthur Finney. It's like, I know they don't know me because there is nothing reverend about me at all, right? And, and if you think, you know, just not that anyone here or watching at home has ever done this, but if you think this title thing called pastor or minister or whatever, elder, is like, you know, something above. In essence, what we are to be is a servant. We're to clothe ourselves with humility and seek to meet the needs of others. And in truth, is not every Christian man, woman, and young person to be a minister, to be a servant. Jesus said, you know, servant is not above his master. You know, have you seen, as you have seen me, do, it, do unto others. So we are to be in that same way. Uh, Paul said he became a servant to the church. We become a servant to one another when we are brought into the body of Christ. And so, you know, probably a good, uh, I don't like the word litmus, but a good question to ask ourselves occasionally is, who am I serving lately? Who, who have I placed Sacrificial time, effort, energy, maybe even finance toward. Paul says, I became a servant. 
And it was because there was this element of stewardship. That word, I couldn't get past it. Stewardship that he says, from God, which was given to me for you. Now, again, the word steward or stewardship uh, often referred to several things. It would deal with, uh, there were three various Greek definitions for that word. One had to deal with um, a, a manager, like a manager of people, a manager, uh, someone who oversaw slaves. They were the steward. Uh, another definition was someone who took care of finance. They were the treasurer. They were the steward. Uh, another was a teacher or someone caring for other believers. And it's in that uh, way in which the, the Apostle Paul refers to himself is that God saw to it that he handed him this privilege and responsibility of caring for other believers by teaching them the gospel message. You remember the early church did not have the Bible. Uh, I mean, they just didn't have it. So what did they have? They had the testimony of changed lives by those who had placed their faith in Christ and had moved from, whether they were Jew or Gentile, had moved from a legal approach to acceptance with God to a faithful approach by the blood of Jesus. And uh, you remember... When they did have a text to check, the Bereans, Acts chapter 17, they were four, uh, more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica in that when they received the word with all readiness, they searched the scriptures. What, what, what would they have searched? They would have searched Old Testament scriptures as the Apostle Paul would have brought New Testament truth they would have searched Old Testament scriptures to affirm and confirm that these things that Paul was saying were, were true. And they searched the scriptures daily to find out whether these things were so. And so we see here that Paul gives this understanding of, of what he's been called to do and then we're brought to the emphasis of, of his last few verses in verse 26. He says, the mystery uh, which was been, which has been hidden from ages and from generations, but now has been revealed to his saints. To them, God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. And so twice there we're given the word mystery. Once in verse 26, it says the mystery. Then again in verse 27, it says this mystery. And so we come now to the, the uh, emphasis of what Paul's seeking to clarify for the Colossian believer and the Spirit of God would want to clarify for every reader uh, that ever comes across this, meaning you and I as well. And so 
the word mystery here, it doesn't mean that it's something that, uh, that can't be known, but rather it was something that could not be understood previously until it would be revealed. It was just something that just could not be understood until it would be revealed. Uh, I love the illustration one father gave uh, about his young son uh, coming into the kitchen when he had put his arms around uh, the boy's mother, his wife, and was giving the wife a big kiss. And the boy comes into the kitchen and goes, Ew, yuck, why are you doing that? And the dad, understanding that the boy does not understand what's going on, he leaned down and he looked him in the eye and he said, Son, I understand that you don't understand what's going on right now, but one day soon you will. And sure enough, fast forward as the boy grew and eventually became a husband himself. He came back to his dad one day and said, Dad, I get it. I understand why you were hugging and kissing mom. Something that previously could not be understood until it was unveiled. And this is what the Apostle Paul is talking about, is that this mystery had been talked about previously, it had been prophesied historically, but it was unable to be known or understood practically until it was revealed spiritually. Hidden from the ages and hidden from generations. And, and here it is. He says, it, it's Christ in you, the hope of glory. Christ in you, the hope of glory. The word glory there is the Hebrew uh, or Aramaic word kabad. In Hebrew, it's kabad. And when we talk about the glory of God, uh, it has been noted that this glory of God was... Uh, can be transliterated the heaviness or the weight. God's glory. Um, can we imagine? I remember years back sitting in a circle with a, a bunch of young men that were hoping to enter ministry. One of them was from Czechoslovakia. And uh, he had been in the States a few years, but he was fairly new in the Lord. And as we were going around the circle telling our story, uh, Yeri was his name, U-R-I. And we were all talking about how we'd come to know the Lord and what God was doing in our life. And, and by the time we got to Yuri, the, the man was just weeping. He was all tears, which was very beautiful. And someone asked Yuri, what's wrong? He says, nothing was wrong. He says, I'm, I'm just getting hit by the glory of God. The weight, the heaviness of, of God's presence. Now think about it, because I, I really enjoyed this 
picture illustration is that the glory of God was what Adam and Eve lived with in the garden before they fell. Genesis 3, 8, the first part of the verse in the King James Version of the Bible says that God, they walked with God in the cool of the day. And so before the rebellion, this glory of God was, this was what they lived with. But the result of their rebellion, which we've talked about here before, those of you who are watching at home, maybe you remember, of course, That God commanded them that of every tree within the garden they may eat freely, but of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat of it, for in the day that you eat of it you shall die. And we talked about last week about Lucifer, Satan, and, and his, his propensity to want to take scripture and twist it. Why do you think we have cults today? Why do you think we have so many even Christian ministries that have spun off into heretical or untheological sound truth? Because Satan loves nothing more than to take the truth of Scripture and twist it ever so slightly. And he whispers in the ear of Eve, did God really say that? No, let me reinterpret it for you. He didn't mean that you would die. He just means, you know... He doesn't want you to be like him. And you can be like him. Go ahead. We know the rest of the story. I mean, we're, we're living inheritance of the rest of the story, right? Because one sinned, all have sinned. And so that glory, that presence, that that intimate, unbroken fellowship with God was immediately removed. The glory of God, gone. And to try to replace that or become okay, we know they, their eyes were open and they, they knew that they were naked. Well, their nakedness really wasn't the sum result of their sin and their rebellion. It was the removal of God's glory in their lives to which they sought to replace that or cover it or take care of it by sewing fig leaves together and covering their nakedness. And I love this. I want to read this to you because I thought this was uh, worth uh, stating verbatim that uh, the result of their rebellion was much more than physical nakedness. The result was a loss of the substance and the meaning and the heft of life. And so they took fig leaves and sewed them together to try to make up for the loss of the kabod. But Adam and Eve's fig leaves were no more effective than what people do today in trying to fill the emptiness in their life. People pursue relationships. They pursue houses, cars, boats, and trips. But none provide the weight 
or that substance in life that they crave. I love this part. He says, it's all like cotton candy. You take a big bite of it and before you know it, it's just air and gone. It looks good. But after you bite into it, you find that it's nothing. And here's where Paul is seeking to unveil. To the Colossian, to the reader that would come ever after. It, it's not about an external thing. It's the indwelling glory of God in you that believe. How imperative it is for us to, to know that, to understand it, to even take steps forward in living it, that, that moment by moment, the indwelling Holy Spirit replaces again, gives again to the the one who by faith has come to faith in Christ, that substance and that meaning and that, that real purpose in life that no longer am I taking a bite of cotton candy to which it just goes away, but I have found true meaning, true purpose in my life. It's Christ in me. And day by day, moment by moment, week by week, month by month, year by year, he's leading and seeking to uh, direct my life. I'm looking back now on what some 40 years of walking with the Lord or something like that. And I think about, you know, how empty my life was prior. Young men and women who have the opportunity to make decisions to walk with Christ today. What a privilege. And yet, a parent's faith can never be their own. How often we, who are older, may have made the mistake that, if, you know, well, if we just raise them right and bring them to church enough, you know, they're going to they're gonna be okay. They'll know the Lord. Someone shared this phrase with me the other day. I thought it was powerful. They said they had watched um, a documentary that we should all watch. It's called The American Gospel, Christ Alone. And in that documentary, it's two hours, you have to rent it. It exposes the word of faith movement. How there are Christian ministries that call themselves Christian ministries, that their theology has left people bankrupt emotionally and spiritually because they're taught that if they do enough, believe enough, give enough, that their lives are going to be like, you know, icing on the cake. And, and they get to the end of that and realize that that's not the gospel. Did Jesus say anything about when we come to faith that our life is immediately just going to be okay? No, actually, he said, in this world, you shall have persecution. That's one of the things he promised. He did say, I came that you might have life and it more abundantly. But what is life to you? Is it, you know, a good baseball game on Sunday? What is life to you? Is it, I don't know, fill in the blank. What is the life that Christ promised to give you to you? 
Because scripture teaches us that that life involves his indwelling us. Christ in me, the hope of glory. And if he is in me, then that means he's intimately a part of every place I go, every thought I have, everything I do. As I said, how we need to move away from Christianity being something we do and the church a place we go. Someone once talked about them being early in their Christianity thinking that the new trinity was God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Bible. I like that. That was interesting because they felt like, well, as long as I just thump the Bible, okay, I'm good. But is that not exchanging an old covenant of law for a New Testament law? In other words, if you do this, do this, and do the other, then, then you're a good Christian. That phrase doesn't even compute, beloved. Have you ever met someone? Yeah, I think I'm a, a good Christian. Christian, what's that? There's no such thing. Is this interesting? I mean, I go a different way. There is no such thing as biblically a good Christian. You are either a Christian or you're not. And there's there's no judgment call there. It's there's no such it's God who's the one who's saying, yeah, I'm really pleased with your life or not. I don't know. Where are we? Okay. Christ in you. The hope of glory. Ah. So about this, an old law for a new law. Oh, I just need to follow things in the Bible. Um, Someone brought out the promise in Jeremiah 31, uh, 31 through 34. If you're taking note, you can read it later. But it said, Behold, the days have come, says the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, which my covenant they broke, although I was a husband to them, says the Lord. But this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their inward parts, and I will write it in their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people, and they shall not teach any more to every man and his neighbor, saying to his brother, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Not to take this up as a new law, but rather the truth that comes to us in this New Testament to be a roadmap for his indwelling us as a people. Because Paul makes it clear as we wind up, definitely out of time, uh, that him talking about the indwelling Christ, 
the last verse, uh, last two verses, him we preach, warning every man, teaching every man, in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. And to this end, I also labor striving according to his working, which works in me mightily. He lays it out there. And that was his life. And we are the beneficiary of it as he put it to pen and teaches us about the indwelling kabod of God. Ask him this week to refresh you in it, to restore it to you if you have missed it. Ask him this week to uh, fill you afresh with the kabod, a sense of the kabod of God. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word this morning. More importantly, for how your spirit causes this word to come alive to us and to be to us uh, your voice speaking. How we long, Lord, to sense and know that you indwell us at all times. And for that, we are privileged and blessed. And asking this morning, Lord, for anyone here or anyone watching at home that has yet to ask you to come into their life and to be to them all that you've said you will be. The one who has taken our sin, who forgives, who remembers it no more, and who presents us to the Father, holy, without blame, acceptable. Lord, we, we come desiring that work afresh in every life, trusting you to do it by your grace. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.